been a, a wild ride these past few weeks for every single one of us. But I just want my church family to know that right now, there is nowhere I would rather be than with you in the Word of God this morning. It's interesting, I've been planning on preaching through just the first few chapters of Acts for uh, a number of weeks now. But only the Lord knew how appropriate Acts chapter 1 would be for us today. I've titled our study, First Century Truths for 21st Century Trials. And with all that's going on right now, I think we, we, we all understand that there are a lot of things out there that we do not know. And my prayer is that this morning, we will all find a much-needed respite from the, the daily news and the stress and the uncertainty. I'm, I'm praying that we will be able to anchor into what we do know, what we do know about God and about us as His children. Like many of you, I have been assured in the Scriptures this past week that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and because of who He is, we can indeed find certainty in times of uncertainty. We can find peace even in the midst of pain and even a deep, true joy in this season of remarkable hardship. And last Sunday night, we had a small prayer meeting here. That would prove to be our last event in this place for a while. But several people shared the specific scriptures that God was using to strengthen their faith and help them to make some sense of what is going on right now. By the way, if you didn't see that live stream, I encourage you to watch it. It's certainly not too late to spend some time in prayer, devoted prayer. And now, all that to say, the, the Bible is full of truths and promises. Again, many of which we heard last week as we gathered from prayer, for prayer. It's full of truths and promises that guide us and help shape and influence our faith. And not only our faith, but also our thoughts and our emotions. Listen to some of these gems we find in Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says, May the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Look at this threesome in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where Paul says, we are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Think about those three. Paul knew full well that those three often ride on parallel tracks. And what's the next phrase in the, in the text? Contributing to the needs of the saints. None of us needs to look far to see the increasing needs around us. Not to mention the needs of the broader community, our nation globally. But what about Philippians chapter 4, verse 4? I know this is a favorite for many of you. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say again, rejoice. Paul knew he had to tell the early church those truths twice because they're hard to hear. But that is the believer's proper and spiritual response in every circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then we have pillar verses like Isaiah 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace 
whose mind is stayed on you, whose mind is steadfastly fixed on God because he trusts in you. Imagine finding that today. Perfect peace. Now the man and woman whose mind is fixed on God has it. Now verses like these are easy to read when times are good. But what about today? We can't help but ask, are these verses the real thing? Are they really life-changing? Will they carry us through? We don't find out until they're tested. And then we know the truth. These verses are going to be tested. And we are going to find the truth. Church family, we have every reason to be confident in the faithfulness of God and the grace of God and His perfect will that is playing out right now and tomorrow and in the months and years to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open Your Word together, You will do the miracle that our best efforts could never do, that our minds could never concoct on their own. We pray, Lord, that You would give us wisdom from God for these days, that You would give us strength for these days, and that You would give us perfect peace. Lord, our expectation is in You and only You. Thank You for what Your Spirit is going to do in these moments to lift our spirits and to cause us to rise above our circumstances as we see You, as we worship You, as we fix our minds on You, and as we trust in You. What a glorious place to find oneself. And Lord, if it takes a virus, if it takes a trial, then humbly that's what we embrace. Finding you will be worth it all. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us as we look into your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just so you know where we're going, I'm not planning on preaching through the book of Acts in the, the weeks and months ahead. Mark did that handful of years back. It was a wonderful study. But over the next few weeks, we are going to spend some time looking at just the first few chapters in this book. And we're going to look at today, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, two things. We're going to look at the setting for this text. And then we're going to look at the introduction to this book. These verses really are the introduction to the book of Acts. And it's in the introduction that we find eight truths that largely frame the entire book. So let's start by looking at the setting, though. And what is the setting for the early church that received this letter from Luke? The setting was an extremely troubling circumstance. And I think we'd all agree, we have an extremely troubling circumstance today. So in light of this parallel, let me, let me ask you, would you rather be alive and part of the church today or when Acts was delivered to this individual? Around A.D. 60, 61, 62, somewhere right in there. Would you rather be alive then or now? 
Now, before you answer, let me remind you that 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith around that time. That's more than a 90% death rate if you're a high-profile Christian. Remember also that in this region, region, it was legal to persecute the church and to imprison and even execute believers. The Apostle Paul could tell us more about that, couldn't he? The early church was still trying to find their footing, and they had to deal with that kind of large-scale abuse. Keep in mind also that in the year 64, Nero reigned and horrifically tortured the church. In the Colosseums, in his own gardens, in ways I won't mention in this audience with younger ears. Remember also that in AD 70, Jerusalem fell to the Romans and the temple was utterly destroyed. Within 10 years of Acts being delivered, the temple was destroyed. Imagine that setting. Do you think the early church knew anything about troubling circumstances? I think it's very safe to assume that they were desperate for comfort, for guidance, for truth, for hope. The setting for the book of Acts was an extremely troubling circumstance. And surely the words of this letter were not only lifting their spirits in that moment, but was preparing them for what was to come within the next decade. It's critical for us to remember context because context gives depth of meaning. Let me give you an example. If I told you that a man wrote a letter to his wife, that would likely have zero effect on you. If I told you, they, if I told you this man who wrote a letter to a woman that they were married and he was a doctor on a medical mission in Africa writing back to his young wife in the States, Now the story would begin to catch your attention. If I told you he had just come down with a fatal illness and was given one week to live, thus this letter, context would start to hit you. If I told you she was carrying their first child, you'd probably get a lump in your throat, maybe a tear in your eye. Context is required if we are to appreciate and begin to grasp the depth of the first eight verses in Acts, this passage is particularly relevant to us in this coronavirus crisis because it was written to a people in crisis, people who feared for their life. And that circumstance magnifies the importance of the first words to come out of Luke's mouth in this epistle. These verses lay out a set of truths that gave the early church perspective for everything else to be written in the book. A set of truths that would prove to be foundational to how and why the church would move forward through crisis. And although our crisis is nothing like theirs, the principles ring true for us today. Now you can start to see why my heart has been so inspired in the Scriptures as I've studied, especially this past week. Things have ramped up so suddenly and severely. 
So with this brief understanding of the setting, let's look now at the introduction, these first eight verses. It's in these verses that we are going to find eight tremendous truths for today. Take notes for your salt group discussions if you're able to meet online this week. So reading in verse 1, Luke says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, pause there for a second, that first account, as many of you know, is the Gospel of Luke. The recipient of both Luke and the book of Acts were Theophilus, whom we know very little about, other than the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, who did Luke refer to Theophilus as? Most excellent Theophilus. That language was reserved for individuals of high rank or position. It was reserved often for governors. So whether Theophilus was a believer or whether Luke was trying to win him to Christ, we don't know. But we do know that he was a man of tremendous importance. And Luke, with his education and his position, knew the urgency and the potential ramifications of writing out the testimony of Jesus Christ. What he did and what he taught, as we're going to see in the verse, and sending it to this man for him and who else, who knows who else, to read. Here we are 2,000 years later reading the accounts. So the verse continues. This first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. So there's the, the life and ministry of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. After he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Stop there for a moment. If you were writing the book of Acts in the context of the early church, an extremely troubling circumstance, what is the first thing you would want to draw the believer's attention to? Truth number one for us, Jesus is alive. He is risen and He is alive indeed. If that is not true, then the rest of Acts isn't true either. If Jesus' resurrection and His reign on high today is not true, then the skyscraper of the New Testament and the New Covenant violently collapses due to no foundation. Luke understood, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that nothing could encourage the church in the midst of crisis like the reality of the resurrection, the reality that Jesus is alive and He's coming back. He is going to win in the end. The victory is sure. Look at the wording that Luke used in verse 3 to convey the confidence of these truths. He says, to these also, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering. That's, that's Luke saying, just to be clear, we're not mixing up the meetings. This was after his death that he presented himself alive. By many convincing proofs. It wasn't just a sighting. Maybe a few months back you saw uh, Washington State Department of Transportation post an image from one of their cameras. Of course it's a little blurry. But there's this large hunched over figure walking away through the woods. Is it Sasquatch? We don't know. 
some people believe, but we don't know. For Jesus, this wasn't just a sighting. It wasn't just one person. Hundreds of people saw Him, and they saw Him multiple times in person. They saw Him in the person. He wasn't just a spirit. He was in person, in a physical body, in conversation, at the dinner table, and so on. The verse goes on, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Again, this wasn't even just one visit, which would be stunning enough. But he spent over a month with them. It says, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. We just didn't see him several times from a distance. We sat under his teaching. We attended his classes for over a month. Many convincing proofs. Luke says, we know what we saw. There is no doubt in our minds. Many of us have been convinced by the evidence many times over. Jesus is alive. My church family, bring this to the 21st century. We must remember that no matter what we see in the news, no matter what doctors warn us of, no matter how ill we may get, there is a truth that supersedes all of these. Say it with me. Jesus is alive. And just for the record, you won't hear that on the news. Salt groups, if you're able to meet online this week, here's your first discussion question. In what ways... Does the reality of our living Savior supersede our crisis concerns? In what ways does the reality of our living Savior supersede our crisis concerns? Explore that thought. Put some meat to your answers. Put some scripture to your answers. Luke is most intentionally using this pillar truth to launch the entire book of Acts to these young believers in crisis. Let's move on. Verse 4. He says, Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. I wanted to jump out of my chair and cheer when I read that. Truth number two. We can bank on God's promises. Wait for what the Father had promised. In this particular instance, Jesus told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine receiving those words? Only a vague idea of what Jesus was talking about, but you knew it was going to be big time. Stay in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to look at a, a little in verse 5. But for now, this scripture drives home the point that we can and we must bank on the promises of God. How does one properly interpret the news and the global pandemic surrounding us right now? Well, for starters, begin and end and fill in at points in your day with the promises of God. Bring the promises of God into the conversation as we chat with friends and family. And speaking of conversations, parents, you know as well as I do, this is a precious opportunity and an invaluable opportunity for us to disciple our children in how to respond to very hard times. 
Do they hear panic or prayer coming from their parents? Do they hear panic or promises? Do they hear, do they see panic or do they see peace? A biblical worldview takes this global issue and puts it in the very small box that it belongs in. This crisis is seen in far more accurate size when we put it alongside the magnificence of eternity in heaven. The magnificence of our eternal salvation. Don't dare look at the statistics without having one eye on the magnificence of your salvation. That eternal salvation. Again, we won't see that reality check in the news. Our county and our state health directors, unfortunately, aren't going to remind us to view the very real risks of this dangerous virus through the lens of our salvation and God's mercy and His faithful love and our eternal home. You won't see the promises of God running across the bottom of the screen on the news each day. May 2020 make an impression on the hearts and the budding faith of our children and the younger generation as we show them by our own lives and our own faith and our own peace that God's promises and His presence supersede our greatest concerns. That is not in any way to belittle the very real concerns and pains. It is to put them in their proper place. To give them their proper perspective. Verse 4 continues, which, Jesus said, you heard of from me. Ponder that for a minute. That's Jesus saying, remember, I told you this myself. I, I, I was the one who personally taught you this truth. You heard it from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Truth number three, God is with us. The biblical worldview isn't just about the good teachings of Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's about God with us and in us right now as well. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I want you to look at verse 7. John 16, 7. Jesus said, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. That is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Jesus said it's better that I leave and the Holy Spirit come. Ponder that. Have you ever found yourself wishing you could have been alive back then just so you could see Jesus in person? He lays out a remarkable truth here. What we have today is to our advantage. We are better because of the Holy Spirit. What a miracle. What a truth. Just a couple chapters prior, turn to John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 26, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, 
nor let it be fearful. Perfectly appropriate words for our children to hear and see in us right now. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Verse 16 says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That speaks volumes as to the enduring relationship we have with the Heavenly Father through His Holy Spirit. And the verse goes on, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be with you. God is with us in this crisis, just like He was with the early church in theirs. Now, I know that's obvious to us as Christians, but then is it so obvious when we start experiencing those moments of panic and stomach-twisting worry about tomorrow? And I'll admit, they hit me from time to time too. And sometimes they hit hard. I have to refocus my faith. I have to refocus on the promises for my own faith and for my children's faith and beyond. My church family, we must remember the simple but monumental truth that God is with us and He isn't leaving. That changes things. The Corinthian church started losing sight of this truth. And Paul had to sternly remind them in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The reality of the presence of God in us should mightily influence the way we live and think and even the way we feel. Moving on, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know. The times are the epochs, that is the seasons. The times are the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. There are three huge lessons here for us. Truth number four, we must choose our questions carefully. The disciples were asking the wrong question. And this wasn't the first time. Can you think of some of the other times? They were asking the wrong questions. There are actually a few of them uh, documented in the Gospels. Here's one that came to my mind first. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. <laughs> Don't you love that? Here in Acts 1, in the record that we see, they apparently still hadn't learned. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. Bring that to the 21st century, March 2020 in particular. 
If you watch the news, then you, there, no, you know there are more questions than answers. When will the infection peak hit? Will there be a national lockdown? Will my family get the virus? Will I die? Did you know that no matter how many times you and I ask those questions, no one can answer them. No one can foretell the future. The only time we'll get the answer is when we're there. What's interesting is that we keep asking the same questions over and over and over anyway. And of course, there's a time to ask questions, a time to plan and to look forward, a time to take preventative measures and so on. But one of my gravest concerns in all of this is that people are repeatedly asking questions that no one can answer. Will I get it? Will I die? And sometimes our focus is so set on those unanswerable questions that uncertainty begins to dominate our thinking. It begins to dominate our emotions. It even begins to negatively influence our faith. I humbly encourage us to make sure that we're asking the right questions. I'd love to hear more people asking things like, is God in control? Is God going to let us down? Is this life really all there is? Or how about this one? Could this be a unique opportunity for millions of people around this globe to come to know Christ as their Savior? You see, there are rock-solid, faith-building, trustworthy answers to all of those questions. Matter of fact, those kind of, those kind of questions yield life direction. They yield peace. They yield certainty. They yield optimism and hope. While so many other questions, again, leave us feeling hopeless and lost because they can't even be answered. Jesus, in one sentence, teaches a very important principle. Choose your questions carefully. Focus your mind carefully. Focus on what deserves focus. Here's truth number five. God does not want us to know the exact timing of all future events. He gives us a little bit of direction. There are the prophecies. There are the promises. We have the book of Revelation. But almost always, He does not want us to know the exact timing of all future events. It is not for you to know. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this point, but I wanted to briefly draw our attention to it because of its relevance to our current situation and because of its relevance to truth number three that we just had and now to truth number uh, six. Truth number four, five, and six, they're all linked together. Truth number six is God is in complete control of the future. That's why we don't have to know. Which the Father has fixed by His own authority. That's why we don't have to know every last detail. As a parent, you know what it's like to tell your kids, just trust me. Just trust me. How much more so with our Father in heaven? He is in complete control of the future. Can you hear Him saying, just trust me? because he says it over and over and over throughout the word. We see this in the phrase, 
We, we see that he is in complete control of the future when he says, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. What a staggering thought. Fixed. That means nothing is going to change it. The timing of what God ordains cannot and will not be changed. The date is set. What he ordains in the days ahead will happen. By his own authority, ponder that thought, God didn't have to consult with anyone else. He shares his authority with no one. No one gave him his authority and no one takes it away. He is self-authoritative. And he's just in, as much in complete control of the future today as he was 2,000 years ago. What did God say to Israel in Jeremiah 29, 11? Remember this. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, for good, and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's the heart of God for his people. What a promise to Israel. What hope that gives us as to the nature and the goodness of God. That's a one-liner worth embracing. God says, I've got plans for you. James understood this. James 4, verse 13 to 15. Go to now, you that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue the year, there a year, and buy and sell and trade stocks and etc. It's kind of what it says. And buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. That is a passage worth posting on our computer monitor or by our bedside to remember, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I love the clarity of Scripture. What about this verse? For I am confident of this very thing. Confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians uh, 1.6 Regardless of this virus and the path that it takes, God is going to finish the good work that he began in you and me. Nothing will stop it. Not one of his children will die too young. Not one of his children will be robbed a single day of their life. Everyone's story is going to be completed by the hand and pen of none other than God himself. Paul says, I am confident of this. Ah, that's what we need. When Satan tempts you and me to despair, that's a verse we can bank on. When we watch the news... We have to remember that nations will do what nations will do, but God alone controls the future. He is sovereign. That gives me great reason to trust my Father. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Truth number 7, God's presence and grace is guaranteed. There are two words I love in that phrase. You will. Not let's see. Not I hope. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
Verse 7 and 8 present a negative-positive contrast. Jesus is very very clearly saying, here's what you are not supposed to know. And now he says, this is what you need to know. This is what you are supposed to know. Thinking back to Enrico's study of Psalm 73 last uh, Sunday, and is is it just me or does last Sunday seem like a month and a half ago? (laughs) So much water under the bridge in the last seven days. Anyway, Enrico highlighted in that psalm how Asaph, Israel's lead music director, lead music worship leader, needed a change of perspective. Asaph, you're looking at it all wrong. Here's what you need to focus on. Asaph understood that. He discovered that truth. Even I need clarification. And it's not just Asaph. We all need regular refocus, regular course correction. The more news we watch and read, the more we need to be in prayer and in the Word of God to balance it out, to correct it, to give us proper life interpretation. And what was the focus shift that Jesus gave the early believers here? You need to remember that you will receive power. We call that God's grace, God's strength in us, His goodness in us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That was the promise and that was the effect. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you confident when you walk up to that throne? Am I confident? We have not only every reason, but because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, because of God's forgiveness and God's love, we not only have reason to be confident before that throne, we have the right. Privileged heirs in the family of God. These are real truths. Christian friend, today you and I need to remember that God has given us and He will continue to give us all the strength we need right now when we need it most. But the text is clear to point out that there is a purpose for the power. We can't miss this. Don't dare pluck this one out of the passage and run with it. There is a purpose for the power. Grace is not God's strength enabling us to do whatever we want, to have whatever we want. It is not the promise of good health. It is not the promise of ease and comfort and financial security. God may very well bless us in some of those ways, and He has. But those are not the promises or even the ultimate purposes for grace in this earthly life. So what is the power for? Verse 8, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Truth number 8, our final truth for today. We have a mission You shall be my witnesses, and I will empower you for it. We have to understand that the Greek word here for witness is the same word used for what? Martyr. Let that sink in. Same Greek word used for martyr. That impacts our understanding of this word, doesn't it? The use of the word witness 
in Acts chapter 1, in Luke's time, had connotations of dying for what you testify of. Speaking the truth at all costs, this was an ultimate witness. That person would not lie even to save their life. This was a sobering word in the Greek, but it was also a heroic word. And Jesus promised the power to fulfill the incredible mission of being a witness of Him and for Him, testifying at all costs. Why would we do that? Why would Jesus, why would God want to empower us for this so others can receive the truth as well? Christian friend, it is not enough that you and I have the peace of God in our hearts. Others need to receive the truth as well. God's clear warning of hell and eternal judgment. God's clear offer and promise of forgiveness and eternal life for all who repent of sin and believe in Him. We have a mission. If you're a guest with us online today, maybe you don't regularly attend church, maybe this is, maybe this is all somewhat new to you, I want you to know that there is hope right now. Jesus Christ has given me and so many others in this church family and beyond a hope that is greater than any virus. God has given us a forgiveness of sin that takes away all of our guilt and shame. He has given us a forgiveness of sin that is greater than all our sins put together. And next week, we're going to continue in Acts, and we're going to look at the message and the messages from Peter that rocked the world and are still transforming millions of people today. It's the message of the Bible that totally changed my life and so many others in this place. Meanwhile, if you'd like to let us know, again, as Mark mentioned, that you, if you'd like to let us know that you joined us online, if there's any way we can pray for you and come alongside you as a community family during this crisis, please fill out our online guest form. You can go to the homepage of our website. You'll find the guest form right there on the front. It's also inside the bulletin, our e-bulletin on the front page. But to my church family, Lord willing, I'd like to spend the next few weeks before and after Easter. Mark's going to lead us in Easter worship in the Word and Palm Sunday. But in the weeks before and after that, I'd like to very seriously and prayerfully and humbly seek God with you on this matter of sharing Christ, sharing Him with the lost. We have a life-saving mission Matthew chapter 28, the last few verses, verse 18 to 20, should be an inextinguishable, inextinguishable fire in our hearts. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Are we about to experience the end of the age? I doubt it. 
But even if we do, guess what? Jesus is going to be with us to the end. He's going to take us through the end. Hallelujah. I think we all recognize that we have an incredible opportunity right now, an incredible opportunity in this crisis to engage more directly, more meaningfully with our community. Not just sharing the doctrines of Christ, the truths of Christ, with, which are paramount, but also sharing the love of Christ through our church family into this community. As mentioned earlier, the needs are going to be staggering. So first, before we close, I want to ask you to pray for our church leadership. They are working tirelessly, and, 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 and uh, many of them working to help find ways for us as a church family to not only stay, to, to not only serve and stay connected with one another, but also on finding ways to meaningfully serve in our community. How to do that with a shelter in place or with social distancing is going to be a challenge, but we are going to persevere. We want to find ways to connect, particularly in our neighborhoods. You with the people God has placed around you. Me with the people God has placed around me. So first, pray for our leadership as they plan and work this week. And secondly, don't wait for our church leadership. I know many of you are already reaching out, checking on each other, especially the elderly folk in our church and in your small groups, in your area. See how you can serve and encourage. Find ways Create ways if you have to. But don't stop with our church family. I want to personally challenge every single one of us to reach out to our neighbors. We have an open door, a most unique open door. Just check on them. Can you possibly go wrong with that? Send them, bring them, you know, just no, don't bring them food later. But check on them. Ask if there's a way you can serve. Let them know that you're praying for them and the rest of the neighbors in our country. Let them know that you care. This is such an incredible open door. But be ready to serve and to serve sacrificially. For many of us, people will take us up on the offer. Be ready to serve. I don't know what the next few weeks in particular hold, but I do know that we're going to hit the peak of a spiritual harvest very soon. People are searching for hope. They're searching for strength and for peace. We're going to hit a spiritual harvest very soon. As Jesus said, the fields are ready. They are white unto harvest. The fruit is ripe on the branch, but the laborers are few. If there are only going to be a few, let us be counted among them. You, me, every one of us in this church family, let us be numbered with the few. I believe God wants to do something incredible in our community in, in, in the weeks and in the months ahead. We can't afford to miss this opportunity to join God in what He is going to do. Will you pray with me? Let's take, do what it takes to be strong in the faith so, so that we can encourage each other 
but then let's reach deeper into our community with the life-saving and hope-giving light of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is none like you. If we have to walk through a crisis, and we do, there is no one we would rather walk through it with than you. Our sovereign God, our saving God, our patient God, our loving God. Lord, today, this morning, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together even online and to worship you in the same moment, in the same spirit. Thank you for what Jesus Christ has done to make this possible for us. We love you. We pray for your strength, for your wisdom, your peace, and even your joy as we move through the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.